these principles of both accountability and protection, they need to be upheld. And, and that's what ultimately the Court of Appeal uh, decided. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Nearly five years ago to the day, then-conservation officer Bryce Cassifant refused an order to kill two healthy bear cubs. Bryce was suspended without pay, transferred out of his position, and he eventually left government service. But just a few weeks ago, appellant justices in British Columbia ruled that the government did not play by their own rules and that Bryce has been, in a word, vindicated. Today, the former conservation officer shared the story of how doing the right thing left him in a legal battle with the province that lasted over four and a half years. Bryce, whose career has included time as a soldier deployed overseas and at home for Canada, also recently successfully defended his doctoral thesis, which focused in part on the history of the Conservation Officer Service in BC and its evolution from so-called game wardens to armed law enforcement agents. In this in-depth conversation, Bryce and I discuss the background and decision of his court case, the need to have hard conversations about the less visible law enforcement agencies, legislative hide-and-seek, mission creep, and how it feels to be vindicated. Links to background news articles regarding Bryce's case and career are included in this week's show notes. I'd also like to apologize. I'm in a new setup this week following a flood in my ceiling about two months ago, and JJ the Hamilton Hound has been a little unhappy with the current 36 degree temperature, so there's some additional background noise in this week's episode that I'm normally able to isolate. But never worry, I'll be fiddling with my acoustic panels, masking cape, and dog toys to correct this for future episodes. Before we dive into the interview, I'd like to take a moment to thank and welcome a new sponsor, Animal Stone. Animal Stone is a family-owned and operated business, founded on the principle that a symbiotic relationship is needed between us and nature, humans and animals. That's definitely something I can get behind. This awesome company sells Animal Stone charms, each handmade by ethically sourced and frequently recycled materials from within Canada, designed in-house by Delane Cooper. Animal Stone also works with several wildlife conservation initiatives that work in the field to conserve, protect, and preserve animals and their habitats. Is it going to get better? You bet it is. Animal Stone donates up to $50 back from purchases to grassroots and not-for-profit wildlife organizations. You can see the full list at their website under Wildlife Partners. Now here's the kicker. This week, as you know, I spoke with Bryce Cassavant, whom I first met because of his refusal to kill two bear cubs. And guess what? Animal Stone has a bear charm. Now, if that's not the universe listening and subscribing to a podcast and providing appropriate sponsorship opportunities, I simply don't know what is. So head over to AnimalStone.com, all one word, and use promo code DefenderRadio to save 10% off your order. That's promo code DefenderRadio all one word, at animalstone.com to get 10% off their gorgeous charms that not only look great, but do good for the animals they represent. From my perspective, and I think from a lot of the audience perspective, it's interesting because this is what it appears to be, is you've been vindicated. The things you've right. been saying, the court said, yup, 
um, the thesis work you've been working on, your yeah. the committee said, yep. Uh, like you're, you're kind of, like everything. I don't want to say everything's turning up, Bryce, but it does seem like things are coalescing now. Uh, so, yeah, well, all the all the roads are leading to Rome, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so let's start with the court case. I mean, let's do the the base review. Let's go back four and a half years. I think it is um, to the day that you were told to to kill two bear cubs and said, "I don't think that's what the policy says." Yeah, almost um, almost five years ago now to the day. It was July 6th, uh, 2015. And I was an active duty conservation officer, which in BC for your national list- listeners is also a... Um, a special provincial constable, which which is um, essentially uh, leftovers from our old provincial police force. So you're also a, a provincial police officer, so to speak. And I was an, so I was an active duty conservation officer with a um, unrestricted special provincial constable appointment. I was armed, in uniform, and I had been seconded to the Port Hardy. RCMP detachment to respond to security-related issues as a result of an interface wildfire, which is a wildfire that's threatening a local community. During this time, uh, I was assisting the RCMP in evacuating homes. Uh, due to this wildfire, we've evacuated about 100 homes. And while this was going on, I received a kill order for two bear cubs, and they were cubs of year, meaning they were born in the spring and about the size of a small dog. Mm-hmm. I declined the kill order for the bear cubs for two reasons. <clears throat> One, in my view, just uh, at a fundamental level, you don't order constables to kill. From a distance, you can't order a constable to remove their service weapon and discharge it. It's always the constable's responsibility and decision whether to pull the trigger or, in my case, not to pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. And the second reason was killing the bear cubs would have been contrary to the provincial, the standing provincial policies um, at that time. They've changed since then, but at that time, there was an active order, which was a standing order for the island here, that all bear cubs uh, be transported to a veterinarian for a medical assessment and then be brought to a permitted wildlife rehabilitation facility for a behavioral assessment. But so I declined the kill order. Because A, the cross way of saying it is you can't order me to kill something. So just, I'm just going to say no right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and then the second reason being, even, even if I was to say yes, which I didn't, but even if I was to say yes, the policy doesn't allow me to kill the cubs anyway. So it would be an unlawful order, even if you could order me to kill them. And so uh, instead I brought them to a veterinarian and a wildlife rehabilitation facility. 
which is what I was supposed to do and which is what happened. And uh, that didn't go over well, I think is the the simple way of phrasing it. <laughs> it didn't go over well. Yes, I was um, suspended initially without pay the next morning. It was like 7 a.m. or something like that. I got an email. I was uh, I essentially had to fire myself. So I got mm-hmm. a, I, I was in a single uh, attached to the RCMP detachment in Port McNeil, but for the CO service, what they would call a single officer post. So I was the only CO up there at the time. And I got an email from an individual in the head, the regional headquarters in Nanaimo saying, effective immediately, you're suspended without pay. So as I'm walking into the building uh, the next morning, my government self. So I'm, I'm on duty. I'm armed. I have my service weapon and full policing equipment. I have a RCMP police radio, baton, pepper spray, handcuffs, yeah. sidearm, uniform, and my government self. I'm driving a marked patrol vehicle and my government cell phone goes off saying, effective immediately, you're suspended with no pay. <laughs> well, what do you, well, what do you do with a prohibited you know, a weapon and a police radio, which is a restricted item and mm-hmm. all this other stuff when you're by yourself? So I uh, got this email, and um, yeah, I put the patrol truck in the back compound. Um, I had a rifle and some other things in it, so I took it all out. Um, got the evidence locker open, and um, essentially um, I unloaded my service weapon and, and my police radio. Took it, took everything off. Um, I had a, I had a change of clothes in the office as well, so I took my uniform, and everything off. I locked it all in the evidence locker, and then went out of the evidence locker, and then managed to wiggle my access card underneath the door. Um, it was a big fireproof steel door, but I managed to get the little access card under there and flick it inside the room, so I didn't have access to anything anymore. So I essentially fired myself yeah. <laughs> and I went home, <laughs> and um, that. Uh, sparked and challenged, of course, challenged the suspension. And that challenge, in the judge's words, uh, set in motion an ill-considered series of events. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you're, you're somewhat limited. Even though this court case is over, there is still work to be done in resolving things. So we can't go into some detail and we can't speculate wildly as much as I'd like to. Um, at least not on on this call. Um, maybe we can set up like a special level of support where I just speculate wildly about things, um, and you get access to that. But anyway, I mean, you've told the story so many times now and I like (laughs) the, I, the decision came out and everybody, everybody, I think involved went, huh, just like a, okay, it's resolved to a degree. How did it feel? when you read the decision uh, from the, the, the justices that more or less said, yep, what Bryce said was right, what you guys did was wrong, do over. Yeah, I mean, I was crying. You know, I was mm-hmm. crying just sitting in the house here when the decision came, and I was crying for a good 20 minutes, you know, and um, started feeling like after all this time, you know, five years of, beating literally feeling like I was beating my head against the wall and nobody's listening and, and you know st- sort of saw the light you know at the end of the tunnel and I I really did feel like um, 
not not so much a, a weight, although you could say it felt like a weight was coming off his shoulders, but I felt like the, these, this black cloud that's been following me around is, was parting, you know, and that I could stand a little taller. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, for me, it wasn't just about being right or, or winning. It was about a, it was about a principle, you know, and the, and the, and the principle being you, you don't order constables to kill. That's not a thing. And if you are going to order them to kill yeah. and they say no, there is a, there is a process, um, which is a, which is a codified statutory process that isn't open to interpretation and it's mandatory you follow it. And it's the complaints process under the police act. You're going to allege that a constable is insubordinate or didn't follow an order that was given in this case, a kill order. Then they are afforded the rights and protections of the police act uh, during the course of that disciplinary investigation, which, you know, all of, all of my rights were stripped from me, you know, they were removed from me. And um, mm. so standing on that um, principle that, you know, you, this is just fundamentally wrong. Uh, what happened uh, both right from the yeah. kill order all the way through to this, flawed investigation process and i suppose flawed is somewhat of a light phrase to be using right now but um no kidding you know so i I did feel that the the justices of the bc court of appeal the panel there there's three of them madam justice fenlon uh mr justice wilcock and mr justice hunter you know, they came to a unanimous decision, and Madam Justice Fenlon wrote for the majority. And her her entire legal career before, well, not her entire legal career, but a good portion of her legal career before becoming a a justice was um, was spent in professional misconduct. So, <clears throat> I, I really was fortunate to have a panel that understood the substantive issue of what I was saying. You know, that constables, um, especially professional constables, when they're on duty and in uniform, you know, that there's a piece of legislation called the Police Act that governs their conduct. And it's not open for an, employ- an employer, in this case the province, um, or a union, in this case the BCGEU, to decide to do something else. Uh, and um, ultimately... Yeah. Um, that position was uh, upheld uh, by the Court of Appeal. Well, and that certainly, again, I can't speak as a lawyer and none of, neither of us are lawyers, but does this not also set some kind of precedent for the conservation officer service? Like this is one of the highest courts in the province saying that conservation officers are special constables and legally by the province, by the union, by the COS have to be treated that way and have to follow those policies. Yeah. For disciplinary um, processes for um, code of conduct uh, issues while on duty and in uniform, you know, and acting in that capacity as constable, you know, when you're making decisions as a constable, if somebody has a problem with your decision-making, whether that's refusing to follow an order or they're not happy with how you dealt with a file, the list goes on. You know, when you're, those code of conduct concerns are to be dealt with under the police act because it involves your decision-making as a constable. So, you know, in my case, 
um, what transpired was this allegation of insubordination because I didn't follow the kill order. And mm-hmm. that's how it was cast. Uh, we have an employee who's not listening. Well, and therefore, uh, under the collective agreement, you know, we're going to manage his position. We're going to discipline him. We're going to move him around. We're going to do some stuff here. And in a normal workplace, including within the public service, where, you know, the public service has some, you know, I forget what it is, it's something like 30, 30 something thousand employees across the province in various capacities. Or more, it might even be, it might even be closer to 50 now, but the, the, you know, for the majority of those employees, they're not constables, they're just, you know, admin staff, bureaucrats, line bureaucrats, right? And if you don't listen to your supervisor, yeah. you know, and you don't do what you're told, um, the employer will discipline you in that context. And if the union feels they're incorrect, they'll file a grievance and so go to an arbitration and you'll have it out as normally happens in unionized context. But for a constable, it's different because a constable, uh, both by statute, but more importantly, within our common law for since this province was founded in, in 1870 uh, and going back even farther to the British constabulary uh, prior to that. But a constable at, at common law holds an office. And the way that works is they are more than a mere employee. When you hold an office, like a cabinet minister or a judge, you know, when you hold an office that's, that's appointed, there is an expectation that you are afforded the latitude to act independently, you know, within reason. And so we can't, we mm-hmm. can't remo- remove the constable's decision-making ability uh, in the field and say, right, somebody 500 kilometers away, not knowing what's going on, can order you to kill, can order you not to kill, can order you to ditch it, and you don't have any say as a constable, you just have to do it. Well, that's that's not what holding an office is about. And at common law, that is, and, and by our own statutes, that is not how our legal system works um, within policing. For a few very good reasons, and I can get into those as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I should note too that I I did reach out a couple of weeks ago to the chief conservation officer's office, um, requesting comment on this proceeding, and was told that as it is ongoing, there will be no comment provided, um, and that is my journalistic duty done. Please continue. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of hard to say no comment because three. <laughs> Three, three, three appellate. Yeah, they've made a lot of comments. So, uh, you know, it is yeah. it is ongoing in the sense that um, a part of the order that came down was the parties uh, were directed to uh, quote sort out the consequences um, of the uh, court's uh, declaration, which is that the last five years are completely nullified. In legal speak, that means they never should have happened, mm-hmm. and as of you know, a couple Thursday mornings ago when the decision came out have never happened. 
so there are some consequences to that, yeah. um, which are still being worked out. But listen, you know, the, the general, why, why would you want a constable to be exercising independent discretion in the field? Why, why can't you treat a constable as a normal employee? And there are some very good reasons why you would not treat a constable as a normal employee. And one, one of them is just basic common sense without getting into the legalese of it. You know, when you look at a police constable, do you see a normal employee of a municipality of a, of a government? You know, here's someone standing in uniform. They have a weapon, uh, a service weapon on their hip. They have radios, they have cars, they have the ability to utilize force on citizens, both, both human and non-human members of our society. You know, do you, when you look at a constable, do you see a normal employee? Is that what jumps to your mind? No, mm-hmm. it's not. You see an individual that is holding a very prominent position uh, within society, that is a very powerful position within society. It is a position that comes with it a great responsibility. And it is also a position that carries with it the ability to exercise lethal force on others, which is a very, as we've seen <laughs> recently and in the past, is a very can have very grave consequences um, for others. So in practice, you would not treat a constable as a, as a normal employee for two reasons. One, they aren't a normal employee. They hold an office and they exercise the authority that comes with that position when they interact with others uh, within society. And, and that exercising of authority comes with a great responsibility and more checks and balances than a normal employee-employer relationship. And those checks and balances in BC, mm-hmm. like many other provinces and many other states and similar in other countries as well, in BC, those checks and balances are codified within our police act, our, our code of conduct, um, the expectations we have uh, as society of our officers, and when things go wrong, how we hold them accountable within disciplinary processes. So the first reason why you wouldn't deviate from those from those statutes is because they are the accountability mechanisms we have when things go wrong. The second reason you wouldn't deviate from those principles is oftentimes in the majority of interactions that many officers have, both with humans uh, and non-human members of our society, there's a diff- there is a difficulty with interpretation. And you can look at you can look at my case, you know, where you have an officer who says, well, I'm the guy on the ground. I'm not doing that. I'm not killing these bear cubs or, you know, in my view, um, the direction I was just given can't, can't be fulfilled because I'm seeing X, Y, Z in the field and the situations unfolding very rapidly. And so the second reason you wouldn't deviate from these processes is that same police act that holds the officer accountable when they do things that are bad or wrong or they hurt others. When they shouldn't be. 
it is the same piece of legislation Mm -hmm. that also provides the officer some protections when they are behaving and acting correctly. And so if you, if you allow an employer like the province of BC or a union like the BCGEU in my case to interfere with that principle and do something else, you remove both the protections for the officer when they're acting and behaving as expected, as expected as they should be. And also the protections of society when they, when they are not behaving correctly, you remove the accountability mechanisms completely. And it is that style of interference with the statutory framework that allows things like the LAPD crash unit in the 1970s, that allows things like um, the uh, Precinct 77, uh, which had huge corruption issues um, in the uh, 80s and 90s. So, you know, these principles of both accountability and protection, they need to be upheld. And, and that's what um, ultimately the Court of Appeal uh, decided. And it makes sense. I've, I've read the decision and they set out everything very clearly, where things went wrong, what should have happened, etc. Um, and right now, again, keeping in mind that this event took place, as you said, just shy of five years ago, um, you know, when we consider all of the things happening today with policing, um, it, it, it seems strange, I guess, uh, to see sort of the, the opposite situation and how that was handled. Um, of course, we won't go into that because it's not apples and oranges, and I would never say it is, but it is just another interesting example of looking at how this legislation and these services are sometimes manipulated, I guess we could say, uh, depending on the political mood of the day. In the case of uh, British Columbia's Conservation Officer Service and others, uh, other organizations like it throughout Canada, mm-hmm. they fall into this gray area, which in my view is highly inappropriate for, for policing. And the gray area is this. The province, as we know from my case, employs constables, yet the agency they're working for is not a designated police force under the act. And so while the individual constable is to be held accountable and their behavior governed by the police act, the agency itself within its service delivery and its policies escapes the requirements of the police act for agents, overall agency accountability. Um, and specifically in the case of the BC COS, that would be an independent civilian oversight board. So, mm-hmm. so there is this gray area where some provinces like, like BC, but others as well, Alberta is now taking a, a little bit of a different approach over the last few years, but nevertheless, you know, BC is still in this gray area where it would be a shame if our conversations on police reform somehow excluded these other agencies, which are also employing air quotations here, police officers, but we're just not calling them a policing service, you know, and I think that's a little bit of a bait and switch from a, 
from a statutory uh, and lawmaking perspective. In fact, I would call it legislative hide and seek is really what it is, you know, and it's, it is inappropriate because the public doesn't really truly understand, um, especially the lay public, who they're interacting with. You know, when somebody in a, in an, uh, in a blue municipal uh, policing uniform with a police style crest on their shoulder, a gun, a police radio, <laughs> baton, handcuffs, pepper spray walks up to you. What goes through your mind? This person's a police officer in some context. And in the, in the case of the conservation officer service, they are special provincial constables with policing authorities, but the service itself is not a policing agency. And so there isn't, yeah. if you're not, if you're, if you're unhappy with the officer's conduct, you know, yes, you can file a complaint. And yes, one of the things I've been fighting for, which was now recently upheld, is that the complaint should be dealt with under the police act if that individual was acting as a um, constable at the time. But the what much, many of the public don't know is that is the actual agency isn't a police force. And so holding the agency itself accountable for how it's operating in the field, how it's recruiting and training its officers, how it's uh, interacting with both the human and non-human members of our society becomes inherently difficult because it's escaping the legislative um, accountability mechanisms that otherwise would be in place uh, for it. Something else that's, again, a, a similarity in the conversations regarding policing is the the breadth of duty. Um, I, I'm sure there is a proper term for that in policing. But it, again, with, with my personal ethics and my, my life experience, the mental health aspects, you know, armed law enforcement agents showing up to assist someone in a mental health crisis uh, is very alarming to me uh, and the result of that. And we won't go into it. That's not what this is about. Um, however... When we start looking at the history of how we got to here, there is a great deal of, you know, who are you and why are you here? Why, why are you responsible for all of these things? Um, and that's, again, you know, uh, uh, interesting questions to ask that are being asked elsewhere that I agree, I think would be, frankly, a bit of a shame if we didn't take the time to ask those questions. And in a handy-dandy segue, I believe you have already asked some of those questions, haven't you? Yeah, one of the things that um, I did on a personal front after being uh, well, losing my job as a CEO for not killing the pair cubs is uh, not only did I mm -hmm. uh, engage in the legal fight, which recently concluded, um, but I did also engage in... Um, uh, doctoral research work uh, with Royal Roads University um, on these concepts, these structural concepts of policing, accountability, um, not so much uh, the aspect of reform, but the historical breadcrumbs of how we got to where we currently are. Uh, and I did look at the Conservation mm -hmm. Officer Service specifically in their and their hundred plus year history here in the province. And it is interesting to see, you know, the intentions of 
how we started with this uh, law enforcement service we call the Conservation Officer Service, and where we are today uh, in modern times, um, 110 plus years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the the conversation though also belongs uh, and I interestingly there's a new book about Teddy Roosevelt and conservation coming out in a few weeks I just got notified about but where we are today like you said it it didn't start with you know the minister of environment saying hey we need something this kind of just weirdly evolved over time from the days of game management um was there anything about this process um, as you were doing your research, that really jumped out at you. Yes. Uh, the Conservation Officer Service, um, when, first of all, uh, it historically wasn't called the Conservation Officer Service. The, it was called, it's been called many things over the past um, hundred plus years. The term Conservation Officer Service um, started in the 1980s. Actually, it was 1980 that it started. And the so that was for the service, the Conservation Officer Service. It was sort of stood up, if you will, in 1980. The term Conservation Officer, um, the earliest recorded use that I could find in government records was 1960. And prior to that, it was, uh, you were, it was the game warden. And, um, and game, the term game warden was used for decades uh, into the late uh, 1800s um, prior to the term conservation officer. So the, the, the enforcement of what we still call um, in some places, uh, I I dislike the term, but it's, you know, game laws and, um, and, Mm -hmm. you know, many of your listeners would know that as essentially hunting legislation. Uh, the enforcement of those, uh, of that hunting legislation or what they would call game laws or game ordinances in, in uh, 1870 forward, but quite a few decades after that, it was the responsibility of the police. Uh, so the BC constabulary in 1870, had a had officers that were uh, police, provincial police officers uh, dedicated um, to enforcing uh, hunting legislation. So they had experience um, in in dealing with those ordinances of the day, which were quite um, quite rough around the edges. <laughs> and uh, and when you yeah. fast forward uh, through time the enforcement of hunting legislation kind of ping-pongs around a little bit. In the early 1900s, it moves to a standalone uh, branch that was separate from the police. Uh, and then in, uh, in the 1920s, um, comes back to what is then the BC Provincial Police Force, uh, specifically the Game Laws Enforcement Branch, um, and then uh, stays there for decades. And then after World War II, um, our provincial police forces disbanded. The RCMP take over our provincial policing, and um, it bounces around 
uh, enforcement of hunting legislation bounces around in the ministries for a while, and eventually in 1980 ends up with the BC Conservation Officer Service. So that's that's a real brief nutshell uh, history. But what does jump out at me mm-hmm. is, you know, right from inception in 1870 when BC was formed, the Conservation Officer Service uh, has being factually and sequentially linked to our provincial policing services. So to say now today that they uh, are not a um, a provincial policing force, which is sort of true under the legislation, the agency itself is not a police force, is is again it's it's a little bit disingenuous for the government to do that because for over a hundred years. Um, they have been acting as an armed law enforcement agency, historically often as a branch of our provincial policing services. And so I think when we talk about police accountability uh, and reform, we need to ensure that we're having a holistic conversation. And organizations like the BC Conservation Officer Service, who employ constables that interact with our human and non-human members of society, they need to be included in that conversation about reform and oversight. Absolutely. Um, and that's even, you know, in the conversations I've been reading, um, we, we're talking about, oh, sorry, we're not. I am hearing people talking about uh, bylaw officers requiring a good long look, parking enforcement requiring a good long look. So it, it is important, as you said, to have this holistic conversation. Um, and hopefully that will lead us towards something. Yeah, better. you know, and some of your listeners may rightfully um, take the position of many members of the public that I spoke to during my research and this this legal battle, including some of the first <laughs> judges that I had to try to explain this to. And, you know, well, conservation officers, I mean, they deal mostly with here in BC, it would be, well, don't they just deal with bears? Like, like what's the big deal here? You know, they have firearms and guns because they deal with bears and dangerous animals that's why they're armed and you know that that kind of um, sentiment and thinking um, holds true for many people and you know I've long raised the alarm that that's just not true you know a conservation officer Mm -hmm. uh, that is not why he has a sidearm it is not for bears it's a it's a it's a policing service weapon you know the expectation is he's not shooting bears with his service pistol (laughs) it's ridiculous the reason why he's armed is because of uh, people policing not animal policing (laughs) so and and yeah i've long raised the alarm of and what happens when you're animal policing wildlife policing in this case and you go too far and end up human policing with that same set of equipment. And that exact, you know, sort of my worst fears have come true. That happened last year where there a conservation mm-hmm. officer was in the lower mainland in a, in a town called Port Coquitlam for your listeners. His um, view was that this mother bear and her two cubs, <clears throat> he was going, he was going to kill a mother bear and her two cubs and he was chasing them around this uh, community in the lower mainland which was a high density population area there's a lot of people around a lot of homes and stuff he chased 
the mother bear and her two cubs into a, a little ravine, a little ditch, shot them, killed them. And then proceeded to come out of the ditch and for reasons we don't know, began chasing an elderly man in the streets, yelling at him. And this, uh, it was covered widely in the BC media at the time. The, this elderly man is just, uh, just shy of 70 years old, uh, fearing for his life, tried to run home and he was wearing shorts and flip-flops and, um, managed managed to actually make it to his front porch steps which was he was just on the sidewalk so it wasn't that very far away and this conservation officer entered his private property chased him onto his own porch grabbed him and dragged him back out into the street and you know then proceeded to arrest him and criminally charged him for obstructing a conservation officer and it turns out uh, that the individual was just sort of on the on the sidewalk, and we don't know if it was a case of mistaken identity or what exactly was going on there yet. I'm sure that'll come out later in some further court proceedings. But you know, essentially, this this elderly man was assaulted by an officer, and then subsequently falsely arrested and falsely charged not from a human policing issue. The genesis, the the substance had nothing to do with human policing. It was because a conservation officer was running around chasing a mother bear and her two cubs with intent to kill him, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I've long raised the flag that officers in the field, when they're engaged in killing actions that, um, are largely left to themselves uh, to conduct, they can go too far. And it can end up in a situation, as we saw last year, where there's this mission creep between, you know, killing wildlife and then subsequently in, in, the, in a single, in the same breath, you know, assaulting a citizen, you know, and falsely arresting and charging them. And mm-hmm. it, that mission creep can happen in a blink of an eye. And that's why accountability is so important. That's why our police act is important. That's why independent civilian oversight is important. That's why the ability to review and reform service and policy deliveries of these agencies is so critical in modern times. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Um, and I've got a couple of comments here. That case, just again for the listeners, I do encourage looking it up. Port Coquitlam in the Lower Mainland, there were three people arrested and charged that day by the same concert. But I think it was by the RCMP on request. I don't know the details, but RCMP was there as well. I know that. But they were detained by the uh, conservation officer, I believe. Uh, and subsequently, all charges, they, they, the prosecutor or whomever it was declined to engage with the prosecution effectively said, there's no chance we're going to get this through. So call it, which to me, the frustrating part of that is not the system working. That's highlighting the broken system. And fortunately it got stopped before it went further. Like it's, it's not a success. It is a failure that someone happened to catch before it got worse. Um, so I think that's kind of an important tone situation there. 
Uh, you were talking about mission creep. This is something I've heard you discuss before, and I believe comes up in your uh, doctoral work. Could you explain what mission creep is, or maybe how that influences um, what happens, sort of, you know, out in the world for conservation officers or other law enforcement? Yeah, agencies? that's actually a great question. So, uh, mission creep. You know, I just like let me let me qualify this before I before I say what I'm about to say, you know, uh, I just like, I just like generally, uh, you know, as, as you're aware, back up for a sec here, as you're aware, I was a soldier before I became a, mm-hmm. uh, a conservation officer. So I've, I, I've had the experience of working yep. um, as a, as a soldier for the Canadian government, both here in Canada and also in Afghanistan. And my specific job was uh, training indigenous law enforcement uh, agencies uh, overseas Although I was a, a soldier, I worked for the military police and I had some specializations in that area. And then was a provincial conservation mm-hmm. officer and provincial constable after, after that. So, you know, I just want to qualify that. Personally, I dislike using military terminology in uh, policing context. I think in many cases, it's inappropriate to use military terms and phrases in um, mm-hmm. in what is not military operations. Our constabulary um, should never be viewed as um, as a military force. That's not the purpose of our constabulary. Um, however, <laughs> there's this phrase called mission creep, <laughs> which is yeah. uh, which is largely derived well, it... from, from military work. Uh, and it, you know, I find it appropriate to use in, in some law enforcement context, yeah. because I don't know how else to describe it. We start out, um, with mm-hmm. a plan. We start out with an intent, um, which may be for all intensive purposes, a noble quest. You know, our goal as conservation officers is to, um, protect, uh, wildlife and the environment and also, uh, protect our our citizens. You know, it kind of seems like a a noble place to start, if you will. Uh, but that's not the reality yeah. of today, is it? You know, we've got you know people being uh, assaulted on their own porch steps and dragged from their homes. We've got you know over four thousand three hundred dead uh, black bears killed by conservation officers in the last eight years. Like something's something's happened here, where where we have we have experienced in my view what the military would call mission creep where the mission and this sort of in t- starting place of intent of why we're why we're there in the first place somehow has got lost it's it's eroded yeah. and along with it in many cases the public trust as well eroded eroded with the original mission you know and we're at a place where we've creeped into instead of this concept of a constabulary force that is providing this noble public service to our uh, human and non-human members of society we're now at this place where we're dressing our um, constabulary and black body armor putting uh, leg holsters, you know, military style um, e- equipment on them uh, for their use of their service weapons. We're, we're putting Molly military style vests on them and we're running around, running around in communities, killing mother bears and cubs and assaulting citizens. Like 
I don't know how else to describe that other than mission creep. That's not, that is most certainly not what the intention of the conservation officer service is. It's not what the average um, member of the public would consider uh, appropriate behavior of a conservation officer service. And arguably, it's not what the government itself wants the agency's officers to be doing. So, you know, if the mission has changed so fundamentally that we are no longer acting impartially as as officers, as servants to the human and non-human members of our society, but instead some style of paramilitary piece of the state, you know, um, we need to think really hard about uh, about what the purpose of the Conservation Officer Service uh, was and what it currently is doing. I think anyone who spends time looking at this issue, almost regardless of which side you end up falling on, can clearly see there are gaps in sort of intent of service, delivery of service, you know, public expectation versus what's actually happening and, and all of this. Uh, so again, you know, I, I'm grateful for being able to have these conversations with you because uh, it really informs me. Uh, you have such an interesting insight to this through all of your mixed experience. And I think that can get drowned out. Um, you know, you have an expertise at this point and it should be listened to. Um, and hopefully it will be. And speaking of which, moving forward, uh, again, we can't get in, like there's still, as you said at the top, as I said at the top, there's still a lot of stuff to get worked out uh, legally. Um, I think your dissertation, are you, are you fine tuning it? I'm not sure where that's at, but you've had a pretty big couple of months, uh, especially when we consider this is under, you know, the, the, the shadow of a global pandemic and dealing with what that entails um, and being, you know, a family man and dealing with that report, that part of life, in addition to these two massive pieces of work, finally giving you closure. Uh, and it's not done, but you know, it's, it's kind of the end is knee nigh. Uh, I don't know why I said knee. Uh, I'm going to leave it in though. So, what I, I guess like the question is what's next, but I don't even know how to phrase it in this context. I mean, looking back for the last six months, is it even possible for you to turn around and now look forward six months? I don't know. Um, what was next for me is I went golfing. <laughs> that's <laughs> I got to tell you, that's exactly what I did. I went, to, I went golfing. Yeah, I, I'm okay with oh, that. I'm tired. I'm going golfing. That's, that seems like an appropriate <laughs> and, response to me. No, and I, I actually I never never went golfing before. So I went golfing for the first time. It actually wasn't too bad. I could I could hit the ball out there a little ways. I was gonna so, say, you, like, you want to <laughs> unwind after a hellish five years? Go golfing for the first time. That's relaxing. Yeah, yeah. Unless you golf like me, which is mini putt with a beer. Yeah, well, that, that's pretty much that's pretty much what I was doing. I was just trying to hit it as far as I could, yeah. and then just putt it around until it <laughs> eventually finds the little flag. You, you know what? A four hundred on your first time out is nothing to blink at. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, I've t I have taken my foot off the gas a little mm. bit. Um, I think I've been burning both ends of the candle, and sort of willing, <laughs> willing myself just to survive 
um, and I've received a lot of support yeah. from um, family and and that as well. Um, but it is there is a point of exhaustion here, which um, I need to recover from mm -hmm. personally. Uh, my own mental health is also important. Yep. And so, uh, while I'm grateful for the out the final outcome of the Court of Appeal, which I I really feel was was the it wasn't the pinnacle, but it was a good um, it was a good grounding a re I should say a re grounding mm -hmm. in in legal concept you know re grounding um, not just myself and the right to say no when you're given a kill order, but also re grounding the service as a constabulary service I think was very important for the government to hear um, and having that be a unanimous decision, and then also the dissertation committee which. Um, you know, past, you know, my uh, oral oral defense of the dissertation work uh, in part, which contained many of the legal arguments which were heard in court as well. Um, you know, academically also um, reaffirming some basic academic principles on uh, what it means to be a constable mm -hmm. and why that's important uh, to society. And so I think we've got sort of this two fronts. We've got this reaffirmation in the in the academic side, and then we also have this um, regrounding on the legal side. And I'm hoping that within the next six months, those two puzzle pieces will provide at least the beginnings of some structure for the government to um, review and reform the conservation officer service. Um, and I have to say, I, I kind of like what you just said uh, previously about um, intent, delivery, and expectation. Mm. You know, I kind of when you said that, I was kind of thinking, you know, that's actually like the beginning of a little pie model or something that needs to be on the PowerPoint. <laughs> you know, because because it is like that's that's what you're trying to navigate. Um, and I think the you know one of the fundamental issues right now is we're not the conservation officer service is not positioned at the center of that, are they? You know, this intent, delivery, and expectation, they're not at the center core of that anymore. They're somewhere way off in left field. And and um, so I hope that with this academic work and this legal decision that, you know, maybe that, maybe that center can be refound. I'd like to thank Bryce for sharing his time and opening up about the ordeal he's gone through. I'd also like to thank him, his family, and his community for their relentless belief in doing what's right. I also want to thank and welcome Animal Stone to the Defender Radio podcast. I've been chatting with them, reviewing their website, and learning more about the company for the last week or so, and I'm really excited about this new partnership. Remember, enter promo code DEFENDERRADIO, all one word, to get 10% off your order at animalstone.com. What animal lover doesn't want a charm that represents what they're passionate about while supporting real, in-field conservation efforts? Just visit AnimalStone.com and use promo code DefenderRadio. You can follow me on social media too to stay up to date on interviews, photos of JJ the Hamilton Hound, contests, and more. I'm Defender Radio on Twitter and Facebook and at HowieMichael on Instagram. Until next time... I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bearers, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. 
I've already decided what I'm going to call this episode, by the way. It's going to be Vindicated, the Bryce Cassidy story. <laughs> Vindicated, the Bryce Cassidy. Here we go. No, you know what? So I, I, I kid, I'm actually going to do it. But it also feels very much like...